0: This morning and for the next few Sundays, we're going to be looking at a few psalms, the first three psalms of the book of Psalms, and so today we start with Psalm 1. We're taking this brief detour through the psalms and then, Lord willing, we'll be, we begin a, a longer series through the a letter to the Galatians in July. If you're using one of the Bibles we've given you, you can open up to page 448 to find Psalm 1. Listen to God's word, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I think most of us probably have some familiarity with psalms, we've heard of psalms, we've heard psalms read, but this book is a book of songs or poems composed by various authors that was meant for the worship of God's people Israel. Most people who study the scriptures understand Psalm 1 to be kind of the, the title psalm for the whole book, the whole Psalter. This is the gateway through which we enter. It sets the, the stage and the pace for those who would, who would understand the Psalms. We should all come through this gateway of Psalm 1 if we're going to understand and apply the Psalms to our life. And this first Psalm begins with this vision of what's called here the blessed life. Blessed is the man. Our first sermon point will be to define this blessedness further, but we might just sum it up as saying this is the good life as God Defines it. That's where the Psalms begin for us, with God defining what the good life is like in His presence. So, this morning we're going to define further what it means to be blessed. And then we're going to dig down into the definition that the psalmist provides or the description and see that the blessed way is the righteous way, the blessed way is the way of communion with God. And the blessed way is the way to life. So let's begin by asking, what does it mean to be blessed? There's a lot of misconceptions around this. We get a description of the blessed man here in the psalm, and it's tempting to think that this psalm provides a kind of key, that if we just kind of insert this key and unlock the door, we will unlock showers of blessings from God. But we misunderstand this psalm if we reduce the descriptions of the blessed man to a set of techniques. Use these techniques and you'll produce your reward, right? We're we're used to techniques in our culture, right? We like books that sell us techniques. Here's three easy steps to becoming the better you or learning computer programming or whatever it is. We want a set of techniques to solve the problem and it's tempting to look at this psalm like this. If we have this misunderstanding of the psalm, then we'll look at avoiding sin and delighting in God's law, kind of like having the right change for the vending machine, right? You have to have, you know, a quarter and a dime to get this one to work, and this one needs two quarters, and it won't take pennies, right? But the way of life described here is not a set of techniques. It's not like a collection of coins that allow you to get what you want from God, that this way of life is good in itself the blessed man hates evil and delights in the law of god because he knows the joy of communion with god he lives in he lives his life enjoying fellowship with the lord and everything he does is in service to that fellowship So he starts from a place of fellowship and he's going to a place of fellowship. This is the good life. The psalmist will say in this psalm as we read it, this is like a healthy, well-rooted tree. It's well-watered. It's fruitful. It's a cultivated tree that reflects the skill and care of the the arborist who, who dug the irrigation channel and planted it in just the right spot. And people benefit from its fruit. The blessed man flourishes under God's care and with God's provision. He is living the good life. Not the good life as we might define it in worldly terms, but on God's terms, the life of joy and fellowship with his maker and redeemer. To call God maker and redeemer points us to another vital piece of context for understanding the the definition of the word blessed. Blessed. So Psalm 1 is not a random piece of poetry that we found in the the anthology that our literature school, you know, literature class teacher gave us. It's not that kind of a poem. This poem, as we've already said, is the the first entry in Israel's book of worship. The people of Israel, they're called God's firstborn son when he rescues them out of Egypt. They're redeemed from bondage to, to Pharaoh in Egypt so they can come out and serve God, the God who loves them. Since it stands at the beginning of Israel's hymn book, we might look at this psalm as providing the opening words for Israel's worship service. Everything starts here. But remember, Israel's worship was not a a a once-a-week trip to the tabernacle or to the temple. Their entire lives were to be set apart, holy to the Lord. They are a holy people, or they were supposed to be. So in this sense, this psalm provides an orientation to an entire way of life. It says, O Israel, the Lord's precious possession, here is how to enjoy life with God. The Lord rescued them so they could enjoy the life described here in this psalm, this good life. And so this first psalm lays down the foundational pattern of a life lived in the worship of God. Here in Psalm 1, that foundational pattern is called the way of the righteous, in verse 6. The way. And it's the opposite of the way of the wicked that we read about in verse 1. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke observes that this word way <coughs> evokes three notions. So, first, it refers to the, the general character and context of our lives. Second, Way evokes the conduct of our lives, meaning our behavior and the specific choices that we make. And third, way points to the consequences of our conduct. In other words, the inevitable destiny of such a lifestyle. This blessed man, then, he walks in the way of righteousness. The context in which he lives his life is communion with God His conduct is one of obedience to God, and his destiny is eternal life with God. This is the way that he walks. With that in mind, we can now look more at the descriptions of this blessed way. We see that the first description is that the blessed way is the way of righteousness. And this righteousness, we see, has both a a negative element, something to avoid, and positive element. The negative element comes first, and it gets the most description in the psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So a blessed life, the good life, is a life that's resolved to resist every form of sin. The person who enjoys fellowship with God hates whatever is opposed to God. In the eyes of Psalm 1, indeed in God's eyes, all people have fundamental commitments that put them in one of two categories, the righteous and the wicked. We'll talk more about where we fall in those two categories as we go. But here we see that in the words of the gospel outline we were looking at in Sunday school, there are two ways to live. Right? In righteousness and submission to God, or in, or in self rule, submission to ourselves, the righteous and the wicked. So let's unpack these descriptions of the way of the wicked. First, the Psalmist speaks of the counsel of the wicked. The King James Version uses the word ungodly instead of wicked, and that captures something here. The wicked are opposed to God and his ways. <laughs> Again, Bruce Waltke describes this ungodliness and wickedness like this. If the righteous advantage the community, even at the expense of disadvantaging themselves, then the wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging the community who live according to God's order. In other words, the wicked push and shove to get their way. We could sum it up with the word selfishness. St. Augustine saw in this first phrase, walks in the counsel of the wicked, a reference to Adam and Eve's sin. They listened to the counsel of the wicked one, the serpent in the Garden of Eden, and they sinned against God. So the man who walks the way of righteousness does not pay attention to the counsel of the wicked. He resists the temptation to lean on his own understanding or to follow his own heart. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Second, we see that the blessed man does not stand in the way of sinners. Also in this progression of of walk, stand, sit, it seems like there's an, an increasing identification with sin. The way of sinners speaks of a more entrenched pattern of sin as well, more entrenched perhaps than counsel. Sinners here are those who break God's law. They do what God forbids, they neglect or omit what God commands. This is, in some ways, the simplest description to understand. We understand rule-breaking, right? The wicked disobey what God has clearly taught. The blessed man does not walk in that way. Finally, scoffers are those who are arrogantly self-assured in their opposition to God. The book of Proverbs is the place to go to understand what a scoffer is. So Proverbs 21, 24 comes pretty close to a definition Scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. He couldn't fit more words to describe pride in in one sentence, could he? The scoffer is proud three or four times over. Proverbs one twenty two asks, How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? These proud fools hate knowledge. In Proverbs 15.12 said, A scoffer does not like to be reproved, he will not go to the wise. The scoffer is so arrogant that he cannot be corrected by God's wisdom. When we think of scoffers, we often think of someone who's talking a lot, who's mocking. That's certainly a characteristic, but the deeper rooted characteristic is this proud unwillingness to hear and be instructed, be corrected. The scoffer hates knowledge and correction. And so the blessed man does not identify with scoffers. The blessed man is not blinded by pride, he's humble. He's teachable. He's willing to be instructed by God. In these three descriptions, we see selfishness, rebellion against God's rule, and a stubborn commitment to continue in those ways, hating anyone who would call for change. The point of these descriptions is not for us to say, man, aren't sinners terrible? Aren't we glad we're not like them? Rather, the point is to describe this way of life and is to say the blessed man wants no part of that way of life. He doesn't listen to those who put themselves first. He deliberately does not join with the masses who are racing off to break God's law. He does not identify himself with those who stubbornly refuse to be corrected or rebuked by God. The righteous way of life is a way of life that deliberately resists sin and evil. The blessed man is resolved against sinful influences and actions because he's convinced that the life he enjoys with his God is better than the fleeting pleasures of sin. Even among Christians, it can sound strange sometimes to speak of resisting evil because I think we've heard it done so poorly. We've witnessed Christians try to police the Christian liberty of others with a hateful or condescending attitude, and we hate anything that seems Pharisaical or, or holier than thou. But it's fair to say we've overcorrected in this area. It's rare to hear of Christians speak about the need to avoid worldliness. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes this collection of fictional letters from a senior devil, screwtape, to his apprentice and nephew named Wormwood. And the senior devil is giving advice to Wormwood about how to best tempt his patient, who's this man who's recently professed faith in Christ. In one place, Screwtape gives advice about how to handle some new friends that this man has made. And Screwtape says, these are just the sorts of people we want him to know, rich, smart, superficially intellectual, and brightly skeptical about everything in the world. So Screwtape tells Wormwood that he should encourage his patient's vanity and his pleasure in these worldly friends. Let me read to you this paragraph. Screwtape writes to Wormwood, the first thing is to delay as long as possible the moment at which he realizes this new pleasure is a temptation. Since the enemy servants have been preaching about the world as one of the great standard temptations for 2,000 years, this may seem difficult to do. But fortunately, they have said very little about it for the last few decades. He's writing this in 1941. In modern Christian writings, I see few of the old warnings about worldly vanities, the choice of friends, and the value of time. All that your patient would probably classify as Puritanism. And may I remark in passing that the value we have given to that word is one of the really solid triumphs of the last hundred years. By it, we rescue annually thousands of humans from temperance, chastity, and sobriety of life. Right, remember, this is the demon talking. Everything's turned on its head. So we've, we've done great good by, by making people think that sobriety is just puritanical, or chastity, or, or temperance. Now, C.S. Lewis could have re- he wrote this in the 40s. How much more is this now true? Christians don't talk much about worldly vanities, the choice of friends, and the value of time. And some of us can easily share the world's cynicism—that anything that appears too wholesome or good, it can't really be trusted. But the blessed way is the righteous way, isn't it? It seeks to avoid the way of the wicked. And so those who love God should ask ourselves, am I walking in the counsel of the wicked? Am I listening to those who would say, it's okay to put yourself first because nobody else will? Or we should ask, have I adopted sinful patterns of thinking? It may be the pattern that says, my life belongs to me, I can live it however I want. Or the pattern of thinking may be an uncharitable attitude towards someone whom God has called you to love. Is your internal monologue dominated by the counsel of the ungodly? Are you fighting these sinful thoughts or are you indulging them? We could also ask, am I standing in the way of sinners? Have I made peace with some pattern of behavior that breaks God's law? Am I doing something that I know to be wrong, but I've stopped confessing it a sin to God? Is there any way in that you're identifying with scoffers? Are you growing so resolved and self-assured in your way of life such that you're beyond correction? Are you still learning and growing in God's ways? Or do you think you know it all? These are good questions for us to ask ourselves to, to see. Are we pursuing righteousness? Do we love righteousness? Are we resisting evil? These may be good questions to ask with your spouse or with a brother or sister in the church who loves you and has insight into your life. The righteous way hates what is evil. And so we should watch our lives. We should seek to weed out sin in our lives and sinful influences. We should watch, especially for becoming hardened or unteachable. That's the negative description of the righteous life, but we also see a positive one. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In contrast to walking in the way of the wicked, the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. We'll see that this phrase, the law of the Lord, includes much more than just rules, but God's rules are a good place to start with this more simple meaning. The righteous way is the obedient way. God has revealed his law in his word. He's made it plain to us. The blessed man knows God's law and obeys it. For those first readers of Psalm 1, this would mean the Mosaic law that he wrote down for the people. For us, reading this in Christ, it means the whole of the scriptures as they're fulfilled in Christ. The writer of Psalm 119 echoes Psalm 1. Listen to the first eight verses of that psalm. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The righteous way has his eyes fixed on God's commandments and is intent on keeping them. The blessed man seeks to obey all that God commands. This focus on obedience is not some Old Testament relic, right? Jesus also says to his disciples in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is a basic expression of love and devotion to God. It's the most basic kind of honor and respect we can give to God, is to know what he's commanded and to do it. Parents among us know this very well. Aren't we repeatedly telling our children, just start by listening to me. That's not what I said. I said this. If you'll just get this down, then you can worry about what's next. Our Heavenly Father calls us to listen to him, to obey him. We must confess that we often fail at both. we failed in paying close attention to what God has commanded us, and we've treated obedience as if it is optional. There can be no true relationship with God that excludes obedience. So we should ask, do I take obedience as seriously as the Lord does? According to his humanity, the man Christ Jesus obeyed all that the Father gave him to do, even to the point of dying on the cross. We see that the blessed man hates what is evil and loves what is good. The blessed way is the righteous way. For Israel, though, the law of God was never simply a list of rules. It was God's covenant with them. It was God's promise to be with them, to allow them to come near and receive atonement and forgiveness through the sacrifices of the tabernacle. It included God's promise to bless them in the land and to make them fruitful and multiply. So God's law revealed to them what He was like. He was their holy creator, their loving and merciful and forgiving Savior, their Father, their righteous King. It's no accident that the law is called in verse 2 the law of the Lord. Right? And so if you're looking carefully at your Bibles, you'll see the Lord in maybe small caps, or maybe it's Jehovah or Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God, the, the name I am that he revealed to Moses in the burning bush that he reiterates again and again when he wants to emphasize his covenant, his faithfulness, his forgiving nature, his mercy, that he's called them into covenant to worship and obey him. And this leads us to our next point. The blessed way is the way of communion with God. The blessed life is a life that delights in being in fellowship with the holy God. So when we read delights in the law of the Lord, we should think of this idea of communion or fellowship with God that comes through God's covenant. See, fellowship with God is not a vague idea. God tells us in his word how people can have fellowship with him. So we could further refine what we just said about this blessed life. The blessed life is a life that delights in fellowship with God according to the manner that God has revealed to us in his word. We fellowship with God because he has revealed to us how we can have fellowship with him. We enjoy fellowship with God by believing and knowing and obeying his word, understanding that his word points us to this relationship that we can enter into. For God's people today, the law that we meditate on day and night, the law that we delight in, is not the Mosaic Covenant, but the New Covenant in Christ's blood. Jesus Christ is called the Word of God in John 1. He's the focus of our delight in our meditation. So we fellowship with God as we delight in Christ. As we delight in the one who's revealed to us in the pages of the Old and New Testament. The blessed way. The way of communion is fellowship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way that sinners can have fellowship with God because Jesus is the only man who could ever fulfill the description of Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Only Jesus perfectly resisted evil. He never entertained an evil thought, He never walked in the way of the wicked. He never stood in the way of the sinners. He never sat in the seat of scoffers. One of the points that the Gospels all make to us is that Jesus was perfectly obedient. And so the the synoptic Gospels all tell us of Jesus' resisting of temptation. Unlike the first man who listened to the counsel of the wicked one, Jesus did not. He resisted. He never sinned. He never gave in. Even when his obedience brought him to the point of death on the cross, he didn't waver. Jesus is known throughout the New Testament as the sinless one, as the obedient one. Over and over again in Paul's letter, he speaks of Jesus' obedience. He is the righteous one. Jesus also lived in perfect communion with God. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and God pronounced that Jesus was his dearly loved son. Jesus knew God perfectly, and he was known by God. He never broke fellowship with God through sin. He lived his whole life enjoying fellowship with his Father. He prayed constantly, and he did all that the Father gave him to do. Jesus' perfect fellowship with the Father can be seen most clearly in retrospect. After he died and rose again, he ascended and was given a place of honor at the Father's right hand. The Father glorified him and gave him the name that is above every name, according to Hebrews chapter 1. He was honored, and he he now enjoys the final reward of his blessed life. The image of the tree in verse 3 describes Christ's blessed life. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This tree is characterized by life. It's a living thing. It's planted by this stream of water. The stream is actually a word that refers to an artificially dug channel. So it's not a wild tree. It would be like a tree in an orchard. It's in, in an environment designed for its flourishing. It was planted in the perfect spot and provided all the nourishment that it needed. It's a tree that's alive and bears fruit at the proper time. We see that it's a fruitful tree, so therefore we can assume that others are nourished by this tree. It's a tree whose leaves do not wither. Its life endures and is not stamped out. Jesus fulfills the image of this tree. He came to earth according to God's perfect plan. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. And he had life in himself. He was a fruitful tree. He first bore the fruit of obedience. He bore the fruit of speaking the gospel, the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sin. And it's in light of Jesus that we should interpret that final line of verse 3, in all that he does, he prospers. If you're ever tempted by the prosperity gospel, Jesus is the antidote. What did prospering look like for Jesus? He was opposed, slandered, Mocked, beaten, crucified. Is that prosperity? We can see in Jesus that it is prosperity. Right? When, Jesus is, is died, when Jesus dies, it's through his death that he becomes most fruitful. Through one man's obedience, many were made righteous, Paul says in Romans 5. Through Christ's death, sinners are saved, their sins are paid for. And though Jesus died, his leaves do not wither. The Lord did not allow his Holy One to see corruption, according to Psalm 16. Jesus rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. He was exalted, and he received the joy that was set before him, the reason he endured the cross. Jesus' prosperity comes through his suffering. In Jesus' life, sinners can find life. You see, the blessed way can only come through a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're all naturally on the way of sinners. Our hearts are selfish. We're rebels. We're scoffers and deaf to God's instruction. But the fruitful one, the one who prospers in all he does, can make us alive by the power of his Holy Spirit, opening our blind eyes and humbling our hearts. And so the blessed way for us must begin as the repentant way and then become the believing way. It's through repentance and faith in Christ that we have communion with God. To delight on the law of the Lord then, to meditate on it day and night, means to live every moment in repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. When he saves us and makes us alive by his spirit, we begin to desire this blessed way. To treasure it above all else, right? To sell the field, or to sell all we have to get the field of great price. When we're united to Christ, we share in his fruitful resurrection life. We become like him, like the tree planted by rivers of water. We are rooted in him, and we're as immovable as he is. The psalmist is clear that this blessed way leads to life but the way of the wicked leads to death. And that's our last point. The blessed way leads to life, is the way to life. After giving us the image of the tree, the psalmist gives us its opposite in verse 4. Not so the wicked, that's how it literally reads. The tree is like this, but not so the wicked, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The tree is alive, it's enduring, it's fruitful. The wicked are like chaff. Chaff is a byproduct. It's the husk that's separated from the wheat and thrown away. It's only really fit for the fire. The chaff has no stability. Wheat and chaff were separated by throwing the grain up in the air. The chaff is light and the breeze would blow it away. But what is good would, would preserve because it's heavy. It would fall to the ground. We're not left to imagine what this means. Verses 5 and 6 spell it out for us. They drive the point home. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked will be swept away by God's judgment. They will have no place among God's people. Since we've just finished a study through the book of Daniel, I'd like to ask you if you can identify the way Daniel's message is the same, or it's built on this message of Psalm 1. They're all part of one whole. Weren't we told again and again the wicked kingdoms of men will come and rise and may appear permanent and dominant, but they won't stand. God will sweep them away. They won't stand in the judgment. They're like chaff. But God's righteousness, that will endure forever, won't it? And God's righteous people, they will endure. And they'll endure because the Lord knows them. Isn't that true of Daniel? Daniel was greatly loved by God. He was promised that at the end of the days, he would stand in God's presence. His life might come to an end before he sees all these things, but that would only be a rest for him. God would raise him. At the outset of their life, as their worship service opens up with Psalm 1, Israel is being equipped with a message that they will need when Jerusalem crumbles, when the temple is desecrated. And we too are being equipped to endure. Because through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Psalter becomes our book of worship. It shows us the path of life. The final piece of good news in the psalm is that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The knowledge of God that is spoken here is not a a passive, bare knowledge. It's not simply factual. It's a gracious, active knowledge. The Lord knows us. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows us because he made us, but he also knows us as our Redeemer, And this brings us back to one of the main struggles of the psalm. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but we are not righteous. We are sinners. The good news of the gospel is that by God's grace, sinners can be declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. If we're traveling down the way of the wicked, God would call us to stop. He would arrest us. He would tell us, the way you're going, that way leads to destruction. It leads to judgment under my wrath for all eternity. Don't continue going down that way in your rebellion and your stubbornness. He might quote to us James, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to gloom. Humble yourselves before me and I will exalt you. We humble ourselves before the Lord by trusting in the gracious provision he's made for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died to pay for our sins. And by his resurrection, he justifies us. By faith in Christ, we go from being the wicked to becoming children dearly loved and known by God. God's spirit indwells us The Lord knows us intimately. The Lord knows us the way God the Father knew Christ. We're known. We're numbered among the righteous. The psalmist ends by telling us the way of the wicked will perish. He wants to warn us, don't keep going down that way. But he also wants to invite us and say the way of the righteous, it lies open to you. Get on that way. To get on that way, we must repent. Repent of our sins and trust in Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. When you come to Christ, you find life. You find the delightful one. The one who is worth your every waking thought and all of your love and affections. He is the way that leads to life. And those who stand in Christ will stand on the day of judgment. So where do you stand? Are you standing in the way of sinners? Or are you standing in Jesus Christ? Which way are you living? Are you on the path to death or the path to life? Blessed is the man who stands in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do pray once again that you'll open our eyes, that you'll soften our hearts, that you will give us grace to see the goodness of your way. We pray that you will help us to abandon the false ways that we've tried to live our lives. We pray that for the unbelievers who've come today, that you would open their eyes for the first time and give them faith in Christ. We pray for those who know Jesus and who are known by him. That you would help us grow in our delight for him. That we would meditate on him day and night. And that you would remove anything that hinders us from loving and serving you. We pray that if there is sin in our hearts that we have not confessed. That even now as we come to your table that you would help us to do so. Let us come to you in the joy of knowing Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.